0: And turn to Revelation two, to three. I don't even know what that would look like preaching like Michael plays, but <laughs> it'd be a sight to see. I'm sure. Not today. Revelation two. There are times in the life of the church where we are confronted with a unique uh, itch- issue, and we think it's wise and prudent as elders to take a short hiatus from our current expositional series and just address that from Scripture, continuing to exposit the Word but doing so in a way which approaches and answers unique questions for a unique time. We are, uh, just on a side note, amazed at how often the Lord directs through sequential exposition, through books of the Bible, how he uniquely ordains that on any given Sunday to bring many things together, to imprint upon the minds and hearts of God's people a unique truth. Now, we hear often of, of God working through a Sunday school class And I hear this from multiple Sunday school teachers on any given Sunday, actually, how something that they were working through in the scriptures was reiterated and uh, clarified in the text that we preached through in the sermon. Uh, And that should be expected. It's all God's truth. It is all from one author with one clear theme and one clear truth. But it is encouraging to see God working in our midst. There are times, however, when the church is faced with a unique situation, something that we're all wondering about, we're all hearing about, we're all working through, You're reading articles about things that you need Scripture to be brought to bear upon. And you're certainly capable of doing that yourself. You're a discerning lot and a discerning bunch. But we as elders think it's a unique moment for us to kind of press into an issue uh, and bring God's truth to bear and bring some, hopefully, some clarity of that truth to something we're all working through. You see that in Scripture a lot, don't you? As Paul writes a letter, he, he writes to a church and he addresses them specifically thanking them and praying for them. And then he goes into uh, some generic truth that, uh, of Christ. The, you're thinking of Colossians, the preeminence of Jesus in chapter 1 and the, the glory of Christ and the work of the servant of Christ in chapter 2. And uh, and, and then, uh, like in uh, the Galatian heresy, he addresses them specifically on what they're dealing with. Uh, and then in Philippians 4, he he descends from the, the glories of thinking eternally minded at the end of chapter 3 to Uh, how they're not thinking eternally minded in the assembly with these two ladies who can't get along in chapter 4. And so Paul has that pattern of of speaking broadly and generally and then honing in on an issue. So we're going to do that the next few weeks or so, address an issue you're all hearing about, and that is revival in the church, revival in the church. A few weeks ago, my oldest son, Zach, called me from Cedarville University to ask me some questions about revival. He had been hearing a lot about the rumblings of revival on the Asbury campus in Kentucky, just a few hours away from where he attends college. He'd also been hearing a lot of talk on campus there at Cedarville about revival and the Lord's work among them and the student body there. That conversation I had with Zach and his friend that night was just the beginning of many conversations I had over the next week or two as brothers and sisters in the body here were just asking questions, just wondering, hey, have you heard this? What do you think about this? What's going on here what is true and actual and real revival, and is that it? Uh, whether or not you and I talked about it doesn't really matter, but certainly you've heard these things. You, you've seen the reports. You've, you've seen on your social media outlets how uh, some hot take on the latest thing happening at Asbury or at, on some other college campus. Christian social media was abuzz with fresh videos and interviews and opinions and podcasts and articles about what was revival and whether or not revival was happening at Asbury and other places. We as a family, a church family, also during that time have been going through John 16. And in John 16, by God's providence, we were covering verses 7 through 11, where we saw Jesus describe the work of the Spirit of God in the world when he would leave. That the Spirit would come in Jesus' absence and would convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come. And then we turned over to verses 12 through 15 and Jesus went on to explain to his disciples that when he leaves, the Holy Spirit will come to them and he will teach them all things. He will guide them into all truth. And by doing that, he will glorify the Son and the Father. And so as we've thought deeply lately about the Spirit's work in the world and in the church, it seems to be a pretty fitting segue to just take a a little trip Down this road of what is revival? How would we know what it is within the church? So, as we think through that over the next few weeks, we run to the scriptures. Like any topic in the life of the church, there's an endless variety of opinions here, right? We could walk through almost any one of our pews and get a different story, a different experience of of revival, of what you've been through in the past, or even of expectations, what you think God should or might do to revive his church. But frankly, it doesn't really matter what you and I think revival is or should be or can be, or even what we might hope revival might be, or how we view what others call revival. What really matters is, as you know, what God says it is. What really matters is what he has given us in his word, revealing his thought on the matter. And indeed, his word is sufficient for issues like this. And I think this is, uh, on a side note, one of the weaknesses of the American church, where we are prone to abandon the scriptures on matters like this, matters of of practice and experience. We, We think the scriptures speak about lots of things, but we tend to rely upon our own wisdom and our own reasoning or the opinion of experts or the latest discernment blogger to help us figure out what is going on here and what God thinks on the matter. But as you know, God's word is sufficient. He has given us ample revelation to know how he will work to revive the church and what that will look like and how he defines it when it happens. There's a a huge danger when you're talking about God's work in the world that you would misrepresent God. In fact, anyone who stands behind this pulpit or the pulpit of any other church faces that danger every time they speak because they speak on behalf or or as the representative of God. And it's a, a fearful thing to misrepresent our Lord. And so with revival, it's tempting to put things to God that have nothing to do with God to misrepresent him by saying this is his work when maybe it isn't his work at all or missing an aspect of his work that is clearly his work, but we're missing it because we're not looking for it. Well, his word gives us what we need to figure these things out. So what is it that God does when he revives the church? How is it that we would then know the realities of that work in his church? What are God's chosen methods to Revive his church? What what has he said in his word? This is how I will revive my church. And and when is that reviving work needed in the church? Those are questions that have answers in the scriptures. We don't have to guess. We don't have to make it up. We don't have to rely on revival experts to tell us what's happening. We have to run to the word. Several places in the scriptures that we could turn. We could We could run to the book of Ezra, and we could see how God worked uniquely in that post-exilic group of people returning to the promised land, and through Ezra, revived their hearts to hear the word. We could turn to the book of Acts. We could walk all the way through the book of Acts, and, and almost on every page of that book, we could read of God's amazing work by his spirit to build the church and revive the lost and to join them to the church, But there's a section in Scripture, as you are already there in Revelation 2 and 3, which I think speaks specifically to what we want to know, which is how does God revive his well-established church, which is what we are. How does God work to revive his people who are well-established in his way, his will, and his work? I really don't know of a more condensed and power-packed section of Scripture in which the Lord of the church is directly addressing and assessing and exhorting and promising judgment and encouraging and calling them to be faithful than what we see in Revelation 2 and 3. It is comforting and it is terrifying to think that Jesus stands in the midst of his church sees her as she really is, knows her as she truly is, and then graciously speaks to her to encourage, exhort, rebuke, and challenge as needed. you have your Bibles open, just glance back to chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. I want to lay some of the context for our consideration of when revival is needed in the church. Chapter 1, verse 4, we learn that the whole book of Revelation is addressed to the seven churches of Asia, or Asia, Asia Minor, known as modern-day Turkey. In verses 4 through 8, we read that that whole book, the whole book of Revelation, is a revelation of a specific individual, and that is of the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. This is his book to his church revealing Himself to them. He calls himself the Alpha and the Omega in verse 8. In other words, he's the one who started this creation project back in Genesis 1. He is the one who will finish this creation project as detailed in the book of Revelation. I I'm the one who began it, I'm the one who will end it, and in it all, you will see my glory. I will reveal myself to you, Jesus is saying to his seven churches. In verses 9 through 20, we read about how John was banished on the island of Patmos. And he was banished there for two things. The text says he was banished on account of the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. In other words, he stood firm on the clear revealed word of God and he stood firm on Jesus as Lord and Messiah and Savior of sinners. John is at this point the last living apostle. This is in the 90s AD, somewhere between 90 and 98, somewhere in there. John is by age in his 90s. He is the last living apostle. Somehow, by God's kindness, he has escaped martyrdom to this point. The other 11 have died at the hands of pagans for holding to the testimony of Christ and the word of God. In his 90s, he has been banished from Asia Minor to a prisoner island. This was a, a known practice of the Roman Empire when you did something that wasn't quite deserving of death, but they wanted to get rid of you and decrease your influence. They sent you to some deserted island, and not just to go live out your days under palm trees and cool sea breezes, but to go work, to go crush rock and quarry rock out of the island. So here's John in his 90s sent to a prison camp, a deserted prison camp, away from all of those whom he loves and knows and seeks to influence for the glory of the Lord. And there's no hope of escape except through death. You're not going to swim the ocean back to the mainland. You will die. And here he is. And on the Lord's day, he says in verse 10, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day, which by the way is the day of the week in which our Lord resurrected from the grave, the first day of the week. This shows you clearly, as was pointed out in my Sunday school class this morning, that Christians had from the earliest times the, the habit of setting aside this day the first day of the week, for a time of special worship and adoration of Jesus. On that particular day, John says, Jesus revealed himself to me in a spiritual and a supernatural way, gave him the visions that then fill the book of Revelation, whether all on that day or over a period of days, we don't know for sure. We know at least the vision of, of John 1 was on the Lord's day. But before Jesus tells John what's to come, that's what the book of Revelation is about, right? What is to come? Before he tells him that, he has to address what currently is. And he's gonna do that in chapters two and three. He's gonna address the churches. But before he addresses what currently is, he has to lay before John who he is, who Jesus is. And so at the end of chapter one, you have this glorious vision of the exalted and resurrected Jesus, He makes himself known to John with depictions that glorify or symbolize aspects of his character, of his nature, of his work. So, for instance, it talks about him being dressed in a white robe with a a sash around his chest. This is pointing to his priestly work. Many people wore robes, but specifically this robe is, is pointing to his high priestly work on our behalf, as made known to us by the writer of Hebrews. That you don't have a priest who has to continually offer sacrifice for sins day after day, but you have a high priest who made a sacrifice once for all and then, what, sat down. Jesus is revealing himself to John as that. All of those uh, depictions at the end of chapter 1 are pointing you to the glory of Jesus and his person. And work. One of the most astounding for our purposes, however, is in verses 12 to 13 when he says that this one like the Son of Man was standing among seven golden lampstands. And then in verse 20, Jesus interprets that for John. He says those seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. And the, the seven stars are the seven messengers or maybe even the seven pastors of those churches, the messengers from God to those churches. The point is, Jesus is standing in the midst of his church and he sees her clearly, perfectly, rightly, and truly. And as he sees her perfectly and truly, he addresses her. Because he knows her, he speaks to her. These seven churches are real churches of the first and second century in the region of Asia Minor. These are real, actual churches with real, actual people. They're addressed in a circular pattern that a male carrier would follow, starting with Ephesus and working themselves all the way around to Laodicea, one after another in chronological or geographical order. They are well-established churches. These have been established since the book of Acts, so they've been around for 50, 60 years as churches in the first century, and yet it is tremendously difficult to be a Christian at the end of the first century. Domitian is the emperor of Rome. He he hates the truth. He hates Christ. He is being stirred by those in his senate to persecute Christians, which is why John is banished to the Isle of Patmos. We're into our second generation of Christians in these churches facing severe opposition. Being a Christian at the end of the first century was no place for wimps. No place for turncoats. It very well could cost you your life. If not your life, your livelihood. If not your livelihood, your family. If not your family, your friends. If not your friends, your workplace. It will cost you something to proclaim Singular loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Master. The Roman Empire was made up of Romans and Greeks and Jews, and every one of them opposed Christians. To the Jews, Christians were a blasphemous threat to their monotheistic religion. You know, they were apostate Jews, they were were spiritually blind. They couldn't see that Jesus, sent from God, was their Messiah. And just like those Jews killed Jesus, they were happy to help his followers to an early grave. Not only were the Jews against the Christians, but the Greco-Roman world had also turned against Christians. Now, largely, they didn't care what religion you were. Do whatever you want to do. Just affirm your supreme loyalty to our emperor. See, they had, had conquered the then known world. They had amassed an, uh, an amazing spectacle of government and practice that brought peace to many people and prosperity throughout their empire, at least as they imagined it to be. And one of the key ingredients of that was that everybody confessed supreme loyalty to the emperor. Caesar is Lord. You had to say that at least once a year, and if you refused, you would often pay with your life combined with emperor worship you had in the Greco-Roman world, the pagan worship of gods of of Greek and Roman mythology that dominated the landscape. In every Greek town, Roman town, you would see a pantheon of, of worship to false gods. And their worship of those gods was connected to various aspects of life. So... Let's say that you are a blacksmith and that's your trade and, and so you would join a guild or a union of blacksmiths so that you together could work the trade and all make money and be taken care of. And your guild or your union would have a, a Greek or Roman god that you would claim as your own. And you would try through sacrifice and through festivals, through feasts in honor of your god, you would try to appease this god so that your blacksmithing would go well and you would be prosperous. Now imagine yourself a Christian in that scenario who comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, is forgiven of your sins, is radically changed, has a new master and Lord, and now is threatened with banishment from the guild if you will not swear loyalty to the guild's God. You see, it could cost you your livelihood. You refused to worship a pagan deity. On top of that, the most prominent Christian leader of the day and of the region has been taken prisoner and shipped off to exile in a prison camp in a place that you'll likely never see or hear from him again. As you come to the end of chapter one, you see that the church is threatened in the present and unsure about the future. What is happening and where is this going? End. She's being pressed upon by the world at every turn, and she is fighting to stay faithful. But she's also in her second generation of believers. Things are well-established. Patterns of thought and ministry and worship are well-set. And it's at this point in this moment of human history that the Lord of the church chooses to directly address his bride one last time with authoritative revelation through the apostolic pen of John. While these churches were real churches in real places, they're also representative of the church throughout the ages. We don't have time this morning for me to give you all the views on what these seven churches represent in church history. It's a fascinating study, but not one pertinent to us. The point, I believe, that is most needed this morning is that the number seven in Revelation and in Scripture in general, represents perfection or completion. These seven churches are a complete picture of the church throughout the ages. These seven letters are a complete picture of Christ's word to Christ's church in every day, under every challenge, in every moment. So what Christ says to them is what the church of every age needs to hear. For our purposes this morning, as we consider revival in the church over the next few weeks, I want to answer the question of when is revival needed? When is revival needed? Maybe that's a duh question, but I was helped as I studied Revelation 2 and 3 and saw a church in need of revival. I think you'll see plainly enough that five of these seven churches had some serious issues which needed addressed and were addressed by the Lord. They needed to repent They needed to remember. They needed to return. That sounds like a revival to me. A lot of RE words throughout chapters 2 and 3. Repent, remember, return. This sounds like our side of the revival equation. The church was definitely in need of a unique work of God in them to help them overcome the challenges of their day, to remain zealous and faithful in the service of their Lord. As we walk through these seven churches and their seven letters, I want to point out to you what it was in those five churches that compelled the Lord Jesus to say to them, you must change. Things cannot remain the same. And that is what revival is in the church. Things can't be what they are. Something has to change. And Jesus speaks to the church and says, this is what must change. So when is revival needed? Well, we see from Christ's letter to the church in Ephesus that revival is needed when the church is cold. Revival is needed when the church is cold. Chapter 2, verse 1 To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. If you took out verses 4 and 5, you would see the church in Ephesus as the perfect New Testament church. And indeed, she ought to have been, probably founded by Priscilla and Aquila, knowing the influence of Apollos, who was mighty in the Scriptures, Fervent in spirit and eloquent as a speaker. Further brought along by the Apostle Paul himself, who spent two years in their midst training and teaching them, through whom God did amazing and miraculous things to establish the church, who beyond then Paul had the ministry of Timothy and later of the Apostle John himself as their pastor. Much of the New Testament is written to the church in Ephesus or to the pastor of the church in Ephesus or from Ephesus. It's a massively important church in God's economy in the first century. They're well taught. They know the truth. They love the truth. They hate what is false. They're obedient. They're discerning. They're faithful. They've tested false apostles and they've said they are false. Verse six, we learn that they hate what God hates. They hate the ways and the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And so I ask you, what more could you ask for in a church? Praise God for Ephesus Bible Church. What an amazing crew, right? A church where heresy goes to die, where good works and perseverance live strong, and where there's a a perpetual history of sound doctrine which shapes and transforms lives. But Jesus, who sees the church rightly and truly, knows that there's a fatal flaw in their midst. He says, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Or as it says in the ESV, you have abandoned the love that you had at first. That word for abandon is used in texts like Mark 1 and Mark 10, describing what the disciples did when they left all that they knew to follow Jesus. They turned from it and went away. It's used in John 4 to describe what Jesus did when he left Judea and headed to Galilee through Samaria. He turned from it and... Went the other direction. This is a forgetfulness. This is a desertion of something previously held important. But what was it that they abandoned? They abandoned the love they had at first, or their first love. This doesn't speak of a priority of love, but of a prior love. So he's not just saying you you now love things more over what you you still have that love, but it's just not as strong. Other loves have taken over. No, he's saying you've left the love you had in your first experience, a love of of a prior time. You still love the Lord, but you've lost the devotion, the dedication, the intensity of that love you knew at the beginning. They once had hearts which burned hot in their love for Christ, but which had now gone cold. So what is that? What is that first love? But we need to go back to the beginning. So turn quickly with me to Acts 19. Let me show you this in the text of Acts 19. This is the beginning of the church in Ephesus. Paul is there in Ephesus after Apollos' ministry, and God's doing amazing things through Paul, miraculous things to establish the witness of the gospel in Ephesus. Verse 10, it says that it continued for two years that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, Verse 11, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. And then the seven sons of Sceva, you remember that story, the the sons of a Jewish high priest think that they can do what Paul does in the name of Paul, kind of usurping his power. And they go to a demon-possessed man, and they command him to come out in the name of Jesus in the name of Paul. And the demon says, well, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but I don't know you. Beats them within an inch of their life, and they leave naked, totally, completely, thoroughly beaten down. This then spreads, that news of that encounter spreads throughout the region. Verse 17, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. God's at work. Fear falls in the whole region. The name of the Lord Jesus is extolled. Young believers are captured with the greatness and the glory and the power of Jesus Christ. They see that he is indeed supreme over all other gods. And they're compelled by that understanding of Christ to bring before everyone, their sin, their trust in, in other powers, in ungodly, unholy practices. They still had in their practice an unholy union with demonic forces. And so as an act of repentance in their early faith, they bring all of their goods of these demonic crafts All of these books that laid out for them their spells and their practices to to call down the power of demonic forces. They bring that forth and they burn it. And that in itself is significant enough. But once you learn how much that was worth, your jaw hits the floor. They brought out the fact that they had this, but let alone that they then burned this, is astounding. They brought forth what was worth 50,000 silver pieces. That's One one silver piece is what you would pay an average worker for a day's wage. This is 50,000 average worker's day's wage. Just doing a little bit of math, it's over $10 million in U.S. currency. This is no small expression of their newfound love for their new and glorious Lord. At great financial loss, they gave up that which they could not keep to gain which they could not lose, the Lord Jesus Christ. These early believers loved Jesus as they understood his exalted position. They valued him supremely over everything else, no matter what it cost them. Because that's a way to understand love. I know there's, there's many things to, to describe love, but at the core of, of what you love, it, it's what you value. It's what you treasure. It's what's important to you. It's what matters most to you. And that expresses itself through, through how you treat that thing that is most important to you. And so if money is of utmost importance to you, if you treasure money in your heart, your life will reflect a treasuring of money by how you operate with work and with money and with generosity or lack thereof. The same be true of your love for the Lord Jesus Christ. If you treasure and value him as he is to be treasured and valued, if you see his supreme and far-passing worth over all others, you cannot help but have a life shaped by that love for him. And so obviously you you see the, the lesson for your own heart here from Revelation 2, don't you? Here's believers who likely had grown up in the church, whose whose parents were... Those of Acts 19 who told them the stories of, of their giving up so much to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and the joy it had brought them since. And here they are four decades on and, and now they are petering in their love for the Lord. You see, friend, it's quite possible to do good works for the Lord, to to labor hard for the Lord, to patiently endure affliction and testing and, and even persecution for the name of the Lord. It's possible to reject false teachers, to exercise great spiritual discernment, to hate the works of false Christians in the church, but to have abandoned the love you had at first just like it is possible to be married to your spouse for 40 plus years. To remain faithful to them with no exceptions. To provide for them. To fulfill your God-given role in the marriage with excellence. To endure the hard times that every marriage faces. To come out the other side still holding on and still being faithful. And yet to have abandoned long ago the love you had for them when you were first United in covenant marriage. You see, it's easy, beloved, for familiarity to breed apathy. For rhythm and repetition to drain us of our devotion, of our treasuring and of our valuing of that which is most to be treasured day in and day out of ongoing years of faithfulness to your spouse can woo you into a loveless relationship of mere commitment. Do the right things with a heart that's grown cold to the one you declared your love to early in life. That is like what the Lord is saying here to the church in Ephesus. You've left the love you had at first. And friend, this is of first importance, isn't it? This is no minor issue. What did Jesus say when he was asked, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? Go do all that I tell you to do. Is that what he said? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength when Jesus was restoring Peter to ministry after he had turned on him on the night of his arrest and betrayed him three times. By the Sea of Galilee, as he engaged Peter and tried to restore him to ministry, what did Jesus ask Peter three different times in that conversation? Peter, have you done what I've asked you to do? No, that wasn't it. Peter, have you resolved that you will never turn from me again and abandon me and... No, that wasn't it either. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. This is of first importance. When Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he comes out of chapter 12 talking about the gifts of the Spirit of God and he says, I have a more excellent way for you than desiring the greater gifts. What is that more excellent way, church in Corinth? It is the way of love. He says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels... But have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I gave away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And he closes that great love chapter by saying, So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Brother, sister, this is of first importance in your relationship with the Lord. This is the engine which is to to drive your pursuit of Christ. This is the engine which is to move the car of your obedience up every steep hill. Cold and sterile doctrinal faithfulness is commendable to a point. This church was commended. Great job. You have the truth right. You've discerned well. I'm thankful for that, Jesus said. But I have something against you. There's a fatal flaw in cold, doctrinal, dutiful faithfulness that is absent of love for God. You see, it was love that was the key compelling factor of our Lord's work to redeem us, wasn't it? Now, I don't mean the overarching purpose of his redemption. I think that was his own glory, as made clear in Scripture. But he himself says, For I so loved the world that I gave my only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He who has so loved us asks of us who have been so loved, to return to him that very thing. Love to him. He has redeemed you for this purpose. This is the fountain out of which all good deeds flow to our Lord. He is most pleased with those by whom he is most loved. And it is that love that has grown cold in the church in Ephesus. What is the remedy for that cold love? What does Jesus say to them in verse five? Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. They were doing works, they were faithful to the Lord, but they were doing it absent of love. And so Jesus says, no, return to that love. Remember what you fell from what you've abandoned, go back to that. And that love which treasures me supremely will produce and compel action out of you which will please me and glorify me. They need it to be revived and restored to their first love. Not only does the cold church need to be revived, but also the church needs revival when it is compromised. We see that in the letter to the church in Pergamum. I'm not gonna get through all seven. I hope you figured that out already. Or you were hoping anyways. you were praying, Lord, please, no. I thought I was going to get through three, but that's not going to happen either. The church needs revived when she's cold in her love for the Lord. The church also needs revived when she's compromised. That's what we see in the church in Pergamum. Look at verse 12 of chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Antipas was was likely one of their elders, maybe even their main teaching elder. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Notice first how Jesus is described in verse 12. He's described as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. 16 says that's coming out of his mouth helps us understand the symbolic nature for the the sword being the very words of christ but this sword in this letter is the depiction of a weapon he says that in verse 16 i will come and make war with you this is not just his word by which he speaks and it's authoritative this is his word by which he will judge the church as peter said judgment will begin at the household of god There's coming a day when our Lord will return and we will stand accountable to him as our master, we, his slave and servant. Christ says, I come as one who has a sharp two-edged sword and where you, church in Pergamum, have toyed with my clear command, where you have made exceptions for your lives out of convenience or out of the fear of man. Jesus says, I am coming to do Judgment in the household of God. Therefore, repent and turn before that day. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm going to have the last say here. My word's going to be final here. It doesn't really matter what you think about your church or about your stance for the truth or your excuses for your compromise. I will have the last say in the church and in this letter to them, he gives them a preview of that judgment. He says, here's what's going to happen if it ended today. He commends them in verse 13. He says, I know where you dwell. I know it's where Satan's throne is. Pergamum was the center of pagan worship in the region. It had altars and, and places of pagan immoral practices of worship for a myriad of pagan gods rivaling that of Athens. It was also the, the central place of worship for the emperor in Asia Minor. This was the, the seat of Rome in Asia Minor. It was described as the most beautiful city in all of Asia, the most prominent city in all of Asia. It sat 1,000 feet above a, a valley below, up on a high hill. And there, they were the first to build a, a temple in which they would worship the Roman emperor. In 29 BC, they built this temple by which they as a city would Give worship to the Roman emperor. Jesus says this is the place where Satan has placed his throne. He set up shop here. This is the base of his operations. It's from here that he's operating in the rest of the world. He's setting up a rival kingdom to that of Christ. I don't think Jesus is mincing words. I don't think he's he's using hyperbole to overstate the case. I think he means Satan dwells here a terrible place to be a Christian. Pack the U-Haul, honey. We're moving. Let's go to Ephesus. We can bring a little love to their doctrinal fidelity. This was Satan's hometown. And so you can imagine the temptation upon these believers to constantly compromise, to save their lives, to make things a little bit easier. And for the most part, we must see that Pergamum was faithful, astoundingly. Verse 13, they're commended for not denying Christ when one of their own was put to death. But beyond that, Christ says, I have a few things against you. You have some among you who are compromising. It wasn't the whole lot, it wasn't the whole church, it was some within the church. And they, as a little leaven, were leavening the whole lump, as Jesus said. And he says to them, you can't let that continue. There must be a dealing with the compromise. He mentions two, potentially two different heresies. He speaks of Balaam and the heresy of the Nicolaitans. I think he's speaking of one heresy, which is exemplified by Balaam in the Old Testament. That's the story of Numbers 22 to 25. The children of Israel on their way out of Egypt to the promised land. They're wandering through the wilderness because of their own rebellion and unbelief. They're about to enter into the promised land. You remember the story, this is the new generation of believers who learned the lessons from their parents, right? Now they're entering into the promised land and here they get confronted with temptation to sin and many of them fall into sin. But you remember along the way, Balak, the, the king of Moab, who's scared of the Israelites and scared they're going to attack him, calls for Balaam, whom he knows has some connection with God or with a higher power and says, you come and curse the people of God so they'll leave me alone. Balaam tries to curse the people of God. First, he doesn't want to go, and then he goes, and you know, the donkey talks to him, that whole story. He tries to curse the people of God. God won't let him. He speaks blessing over the people of God. And then we find out later in Numbers 31 that in Numbers 25, when the people, the men of Israel, committed adultery with the women of Moab, it was because Balaam said to Balak, hey, here's how you do it. Get your women to seduce their men. And lure them into the pagan practices of idolatry and sexual immorality. So, because the curse wouldn't work, let's try compromise. And he's just trying the same old thing that Satan has tried from the garden. Instead of coming in with a blitzkrieg model and blowing the whole thing up, he just enters in subtly with a twisted tongue, speaks sneakily to the people of God, beckons them to compromise. To just bend your morals a little bit. Just ease off a little bit. And then it will go better with you in the world. This is what's happening in Pergamum. They're following the teaching of a false teacher who's giving them allowance to compromise on biblical morality and biblical worship. And can I just say to you, if you want to compromise on biblical morality and biblical worship, you will find a teacher in the church who will give you license. Especially in our day and age when you can turn on the radio and hear any number of, of men and now women teaching you from the scriptures. I'm not saying they're all false teachers. I'm just saying if you want to compromise, you will find a teacher who will tickle your ears and lead you to that compromise. This is one of Satan's most effective tactics to infiltrate and destroy the church, If he can just get into the assembly with a, a subtle lie that can bleed into the group and start spreading among them, the prospect of full defeat is very promising. In Pergamum, not all the members were compromising, but all of them were letting the compromise happen. According to the words of Jesus, they seemed unwilling to do anything about it. They were a compromised church out of the fear of man out of the fear of taking a bold stand and what it might cost them. And indeed, the pressure was great. The throne of Satan was in their own town. They were already suffering greatly for their loyalty and faithfulness to Christ. And yet, they're tempted to compromise, to ease the pressure just a bit. Jesus says, it is not too late Repent of your compromise. Turn from the false teaching of the Nicolaitans. Stop participating in any way with the false worship of idols. Stop going to the feast. Stop eating the food of those meals in honor of those pagan gods. Stop participating in any way with the sexual immorality associated with it all. And you say, well, we don't face that today. I don't have a union. I don't have a farmer's union. I've got to go to the, the pagan feast of a pagan god and participate in No, but the church over the last 60 years has has run headlong after the world. Tried to look more like the world and less like the church than ever before. So as to appease and please the world. So as to alleviate the pressure of those who think we're a bunch of religious kooks. We want their respect We want them to appreciate us. We want them to applaud us and celebrate all the good we're doing in the world. Beloved, we have forgotten that the world is run by the devil. His throne is there. And he is after the church through the world. Be on your Guard, evaluate your life for any form of compromise that you have allowed in your heart, in your mind, or in your practice. try to draw this to a close. I say to you, the local church is made up of of individual members. If the love of the church has grown cold or if the church is compromising, it is because members within the body are cold or... Compromising. And so from this text, I plead with you to this morning evaluate the state of your relationship with our Lord Jesus. Has your love grown cold toward Him? Has days and months and years of steady faithfulness worn down your devotion? Sure, you're still doing the right things. You still look the right ways. But in many ways, you're just going through the motions. You're just doing what's expected because it's what's expected. Friend, I've been there, and I must admit, I was there this past week. Just doing what I knew I needed to do, because that's what I needed to do, but spiritually empty and dry in a wilderness. Asking the Lord, what in the world is wrong with me? And at times, not even caring what was wrong with me. On autopilot, did nothing horrifically sinful that I know of, but just cruising, doing the right things, but absent of love for my Lord. I don't know your heart this morning, but I know that this is a fight we must all have regularly. The routine and rhythm can lull our inner man to a spiritual forgetfulness chips away at our fervency and our depth of love for God. And what is the answer according to Jesus in verse 5? Remember. Remember. A spiritual medicine that always destroys the cancer of spiritual apathy in my soul, and I think in yours as well, I think this is biblical, is to return to the Lord Jesus Christ, remembering the love he had for you. How can you not fall in humility and awe and adoration at the cross of Christ? Considering him who gave himself for you, how ought that not stir your love for him? Maybe this morning you need revive from the state of compromise seen in the church in Pergamum. Friend, has the constant state of of barrage from satanic propaganda in our culture gotten to you? As the world, the flesh, and the devil assault your faith, have you started to make allowances that dishonor Christ? Have you softened your commitment to your own purity? Have you opened up avenues to your heart which allow the rampant immorality of our culture to have influence and to lure you slowly away from the Lord Jesus? The issue of morality in culture and in our culture in particular is always tied to worship, always. Sexuality is always a worship issue. Those who are trapped and enslaved to sexual sin are those who are worshiping a false god. The god of self, the god of sex, the god of self-expression, the god of liberty, the god of pleasure, and so on it goes. And these false worshipers who dominate the media in our land, who dominate the airwaves, who dominate almost everything you see and hear in our culture, these false worshipers have access to your heart and they press upon you to compromise your position. They call you to make allowance in your Christianity for some form of these lusts of the flesh to, to be okay or even to be celebrated in the Christian community. You're being told by the ambassadors of Satan that the church has, has suppressed and oppressed society for far too long. You're being told by politicians and news reporters and social media influencers that the morals of the church have have for too long been the accepted standard in society, and now it's time for the church to give ground. Now it's time for the church to compromise. Now it's time for the church to admit that these standards are old-fashioned and outdated and that they hurt people and even that they kill people. And you need to compromise your stand so that the world can feel better about its sin. The church is being told that sexual deviancy of any kind is actually the expression of individual freedom and that we should protect the rights of those expressing individual freedom by allowing them to kill their babies that result from their sexual deviancy at any point in the womb or even shortly thereafter. That we as a church also should should not only do that, but we should celebrate people who are wrestling through their sexual identity as though that were a a right and good struggle, not a result of sin and the curse and the fall. And that we, the church, are in the way of progress, that we, the church, are hurting people and destroying people who just want to be free and have fun. And friend, you can find teachers in the church who will support all of what I just said to you, who will tell you this is the way. Compromise with me on these issues. Beloved, where you feel that tendency, and it is hard, we live in a land where Satan's throne is increasing and Christ's throne, in terms of hearts devoted to him, is decreasing it is getting more difficult and it is not about to stop. That compromise corporately must be evaluated personally. Brother or sister, maybe your sexual ethic is the same, but in your practice, you've given yourself allowance. You've entertained the lust of the flesh. You've given an inch to immorality and it's taken a mile what is the answer for you today? There is freedom not in your sexual immorality. There is freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ who can free you from enslavement to your sin, who can give you new and true and real everlasting life. So friend, if today you are cold or compromised, return, repent, remember. Remember. Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege of submitting our hearts to your word. We ask that you would not allow us to be those who just hear it, weigh it in the balances of our mind and then move on with life. Father, by your spirit, would you press these truths deeply upon us, forever shaping us and changing us to be men and women of God who are fervent in our love for you, and who are uncompromised in our devotion and obedience to you. Lord, where that needs revived in our hearts, where we need changed, where we need to repent, would you graciously make that happen this morning? For those among us who are still captive to sin, lost in the darkness of their rebellion against you, Father, would today be the day of their salvation. Would you rescue them, free them, and give them life in your Son? In his name we pray, amen.